working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everyone, thanks for joining us for another episode of Working Drummer Podcast. I'm Zach Albetta. Today my conversation is with Kevin Canner, who was one of the first drummers I met in L.A. when I moved there in 2010. Not long after that, Kevin moved to New York, where he spent five years and began his continuing tenure with guitarist and singer John Pizzarelli. Kevin returned to his hometown of L.A. a year ago and has taken up the mantle of carving out a place in that scene for the high-energy, soulful, super-swinging jazz that he has loved and dedicated himself to since he was a teenager. As always, you can find us at WorkingDrummer.net. If you want to learn more about the podcast, check out past episodes or donate to the podcast on Patreon. Donations start as low as $1 a month, and the more you donate, the more incentives there are, including Working Drummer podcast t-shirts and stickers, a video lesson with one of our past guests, or the chance to be interviewed on your own episode. Again, go to WorkingDrummer.net or Patreon.com slash WorkingDrummer. Also follow us on social media, share pics and videos of your gigs using the hashtag Working Drummer, and leave us a rating and review on iTunes. Thanks in advance for all of that. I'd like to introduce you all to Crush Drums by telling you about one of their new lines. They are offering a brand new birch kit called the Sublime Birch Series. The Sublime Birch is 100% North American birch. Here's Crush's own Terry Platt talking about some of the cool features of the Sublime Birch Series. One thing that Crush has always done is on our 14-inch floor toms, we do a 14 by 13. It's got the fullness and depth of a 14 by 14 tom, but you can also, tuning range-wise, manipulate it to sound more like a 14 by 12 for the guys that, that enjoy that tone as well. It also includes the hoop saver claws that we developed where we actually have the rubber grommet under the claw protruding through the front of the claw. So if somebody grabs their drum set and sets it down, say, on concrete, you know, claw side down, it doesn't scratch up everything. And here's one of my favorite things about what Crush is doing. The bearing edges are cut a little more specifically for the drums. Our standard edge is a, you know, kind of a double 45, and the outside is rounded over so you get some more head contact with the shell. On the bass drum, you'll notice that the resonant side is even rounder than that and then the uh, batter side's going to be a little bit sharper just so you get that nice snap out of the kick but the resonant head really brings the whole shell into the equation of the tone you can also find a link to the new sublime birch series in our show notes and see the beautiful finishes and configurations they offer in the near future we've got much more to share in regard to crush drums and this dynamic company for now check out crush drums at crushdrum.com so you're about to hear a conversation with a dyed-in-the-wool jazz drummer. When it comes to straight-ahead bop and post-bop drumming and swinging with deep soul and intensity, I think Kevin is as pure an example as you'll find, especially in his generation. He was mentored by Jeff Hamilton beginning at age 14 and has steeped himself in small group jazz ever since. As a result, his list of credits includes some of the biggest names in jazz on both coasts, including John Pizzarelli, Eric Reed. Terrell Stafford, Walter Smith III, and many more. His conversation is as sharp and energetic as his playing, so get ready for a fun talk with Kevin Canner. You got the mint tonight? No. 
it's every other week now. Oh, it's every other week. Okay. Yeah, which I think is necessary. <laughs> yeah. Man, like I'm so tired after those nights. And it's an ep- it's even longer now because I like curate this first set. Mm-hmm. I, so this 8 o'clock set. So I have to be there like super early to get that set up and announce them and make sure that's cool. And then I, I, I only live three blocks away from the club though, actually. So right. I'm able to go back and forth. So that's super cool. Nice. But, uh, well, that's that's kind of where I wanted to start because you you returned to LA like less than a year ago, right? A year ago, last month. Okay, cool. August, August, second week of August. Right. So, so but yeah, it's been a year during during the time I lived in LA when when you were still there before you went to New York. Like the Mint Jam session uh, was, you know, the thing the thing in town for for. The jazz scene, as far as jams went, yeah, um, yeah, and that was sure. one of the first things that you got going again when you returned to L.A. Yeah, um, yeah. So talk was, talk a little bit about how that first started, who was okay. involved, and and then getting yeah. getting it going again when you returned. Cool. Yeah, it's a funny it's a funny story actually. Um, not ha ha funny. <laughs> uh, I was in um, I was in San Diego playing with Gilbert Castellanos. And we were playing at this place called Dizzy's, but it was the original, I think it's the original location of Dizzy's, which is was um, now basically where Petco Park is. Like, we watched Petco Park be built from Dizzy's. Yeah. You know, um, and we just all knew that, you know, this is only a matter of time before, you know, this place is going to be out of here because the stadium is literally across the street. Right. So uh, we were playing there, and... This guy, it was a, it was a Miles, it was a Miles and Wayne tribute. So we were doing like a lot of like '60s Miles, you know, like Tony, uh, that vibe, right? You know, um, and this guy, you know, so I had my Tony Williams hat on for the gig, and I was, you know, we were really in there. I think Gerald Clayton was probably on piano at that time, and um, this guy pulls up in a limo and he gets out and he, he's basically like just saying like, man, I listened to your sick. Cause he could, you could see through the, it was like a whole glass front to the club. So you right. could watch a show from the street yeah. and hear it. And he had done that from his limo. He, he just <laughs> watched the show and he, and we came out of the club and he came out of his, his limo and you know, he wasn't like a celebrity. He ended up being the owner of the mint no who shit. was just taking his wife out for like an extravagant night. Wow. Uh, you know, in a limo. It was like their anniversary or something. It was some, you know, fun event that he had hired a limo driver for. Right. And he's like, man, we listened to the, you know, half the set from the car, man. You got, man, who's who's Tony Williams on drums? You know, and I was <laughs> like, oh, damn. You know, who's this guy, dude? Like, this is ha- this is happening. Yeah. And he was like, well, you know, I, I live in L.A. Would you guys ever be willing to play in L.A.? And I was like, dude, I live in L.A. Like, what do you mean? <laughs> He's like, well, I own this club called The Mint. I was like, yeah, I know The Mint. He's like, well, we're trying to, like, thinking about starting a jam session there. And, uh, man, like, I love this band. Like, you guys, you know, so basically, you know, me being the guy from L.A., I kind of, you know, spearheaded this connection with him. And, and then kind of we started off slow. You know, we went from there. Like, that was the meeting. And, I, you know, I was totally into it, obviously. Mm-hmm. And uh, the first, like, uh, year or so, not even maybe, I don't know, the first eight months, it was, you know, it, it was a thing. Like, it took a while, like, to get this going. It was not an instantaneous thing. Right. And the catalyst for what kind of making it what really was – something more than it just, you know, a session was this guy, James Massione, who's a really good friend of mine, 
who was like a student of mine, like way back in the day, but not a serious, like we kind of just became like more friends. He's my age, you know? Um, and he was promoting all these like hip hop shows and on the East side. And he wanted to do this thing called groove pocket where he would have basically Gilbert Castellanos' band play with a DJ or, or the DJ would spin and then Gilbert would play. It was like a whole event. Right. And basically that was, he was like, I got him to start promoting for the mint and hiring DJs that I did not know. Mm-hmm. So that changed the whole game because he was getting all these people in that were kind of there for the DJ, but then stayed for the jazz. Right. And, and we should, we should mention that like the mint historically has not been a jazz venue. It's not at all. It's, a jazz it's venue. you know, it's, it's one of more, the, it's more true now than it was 10 years ago. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> and it's, it's one of the cool venues in LA, like, but it was never yeah. a jazz room. Um, right. So and Monday, you know, there's its own issues with that as well, because there's, just little hurdles that we we have to handle because you know they don't know the prima donna jazz vibe you know like yeah <laughs> you know like they're just like rock dudes basically and they're, right. they take you know whatever that means but you know there's a very like chill you know it's like whatever the sound you had whatever the sound you know it's like <laughs> no dude like my guitar player is freaking out dude like you gotta like help him out with right this, you know right. um so with that, with the DJ coming in and then the monk band who were all friends of Gerald's from basically uh Vale, mm-hmm. Colorado, the Vale jazz thing, Joe Sanders, Ambrose, Akamusari, Tim Green, all these guys came in at once. And at the time, like right before then, it was uh, Alan Hampton in the mm. house band with me, Alan Hampton, uh, Larry Fuller, was yeah. sort of random. And then James Westfall, this vibraphonist. So they left. I hired this band. All these guys knew each other. Harish was actually playing bass at that time. Just those three elements kind of came together at once. And then like it was, it, you know, yeah. greater than the sum of its parts. Right, right. And so what what year is this we're talking about? 2006. So so you're 25? Basically. Yeah. 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 Just like leading the, the preeminent jazz jam in L.A. Yeah, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. And Um, it was every Monday. Right. You know, and I had a year of it before that. But this is all, you know, it was not really a challenge in the sense of like a vision because Gilbert really is the the main reason why I wanted to do this. Mm -hmm. He did a jam session at this place called uh, the Onyx Room Mm -hmm. in San Diego, which I did every week for years, Tuesday night. Every Tuesday night for years, you and Gerald did it with Tuesday me. Night. Oh man, I would stay down there for sometimes three days in a row with yeah, Gil. Yeah, yeah. To play Tuesday at the Onyx, Wednesday at this place in La Jolla. Thursday we played the Juke Joint or somewhere that ended up closing. But I mean, just get. I was always in San Diego playing yeah. with Gilbert, and this thing at the Onyx Room was like it was an underground club. It was all like you know you know just chicks and dudes and like everyone's <laughs> drinking and hanging and then we'd play like you know dahood and they would go nuts right it was right. like how is this possible like these people are like my age hanging like drinking but then they're quiet when there's a ballad they're like super into it when it's like some you know high energy shit they're clapping at the right moments i mean it was just this like 
I'd never seen anything like that before. Right. So I knew it was possible. And just briefly on on that tip, like how do you how do you think that venue did that? How do you think that venue like got that crowd in there? To- Dude, they just committed to a vibe, man. Like it's so frustrating that like I I, I stand by and I watch all these clubs come up and they say, oh, I want to have jazz. I want to do this, uh, you know, and it's like every time they have this like golden egg and then they drop it, you know, they're like, <laughs> what are you doing? Why are you doing it like this? Why right. would you do this? Right. You know, and, and so to be more specific about your question, you know, they committed to a vibe. They they it was a cool club that people wanted to go to anyway. Mm-hmm. You know, the Onyx Room was like, you know, it was on Friday night. You'd go there. There's no jazz on Friday. There's a line around the block of like, you know, clubbers trying to get in right but they they did that and they hired someone to play high energy i mean people like high energy jazz yeah you know it's it's and it's so bizarre it's like matt wilson says you know swinging is the new (laughs) avant-garde but like you know you it's it's just in in southern california and this is partially about why i came back you know this kind of come back full circle from new york because i was there and i realized like oh yeah People do like high energy, like swinging, soulful jazz music. Like mm-hmm. they 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 love it. And for some reason in California, it feels like there's a bubble around the city. <laughs> you know that mm-hmm. like it's there's little bits of it, but it's like it doesn't permeate the scene in the same way as it, even San Diego has more. And you know the Onyx Room, like I, I this whole thing. So. They have more of a vibe rather than, you know, it seems like L.A. is just sort of, you know, kind of like not trying to do that. Right. So you, you felt the need is. you felt the need to come back to L.A. and kind of carry yeah. that torch for that's for... carry the torch is is more selfish. I just want to, like, be one of the people that is just putting it like a, you know, just another person populating the scene with this music. Right, right. You know, and I love all of it. You know, I'm down for like, you know, all I love good music, you Mm -hmm. know, like, but I want to see uh, the music that I like. You know, when I go to a jazz club, I I, want to hear the music I like to hear. Right. I don't don't always want to go. You have to be challenged in 13 and 17. It's like, (laughs) cool. But like sometimes, you know, I also want to hear some like real legit swing right and and this kind of like dovetails with a another thing i wanted to ask you which is about kind of finding your identity as a jazz musician and as a jazz drummer um because i think uh you know in in the jazz scene no matter what city you're in and especially in in, especially in uh, jazz training in college or whatever i think there's there's pressure put on musicians or they put pressure on themselves to to be unique to be new to right. be groundbreaking and and um, have yeah. this really singular identity, um, and it it seems like you in in your um, in your sensibilities and in your playing, you you haven't you haven't felt that pressure to um, to reinvent the wheel. Like when I hear you play, yeah. when I hear you play, I'm like, that's the real shit. That is the real <laughs> swing jazz bop post bop shit. Sure, um, sure. I mean, it's it's like it's like tasting an authentic dish in a restaurant or something. You're like, this right, is, right, you know, sure. Um, Thanks. I, I that's I appreciate that. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, I think part of that is is like, it, you know, it's a it's a double edged sword. It has helped me and it has also hurt me. Right. right. You know, to be so. I, I just 
I can't not, um, I can't, I can't fake it. Mm-hmm. I can't fake it. So I have to play what I love to play. Yep. Otherwise I'm just, you know, I'm just grumpy and, you, and my face is, you know, <laughs> I wear my emotions on my face and I, I've gotten to a point to where like, I just, um, uh, well, there's, let, let me, can I be a little more detailed than that answer? Of course. Um, you know, I started studying with Jeff Hamilton really young, mm-hmm. 15, 14, 15, something like that. And, you know, that was like a natural thing. Like, I just loved that. You didn't have to tell me to love it. You didn't have to, you know, prove it to me or ins- wow me. It, it wasn't even about like that really, you know, primal connection to, to just incredible drumming that right. all drummers have. You know, it was just a natural like this. Like, I love this. This just brings me so much joy. Yeah. So that overrides everything. Right. And when you're talking about that, you're, you're talking about just straight ahead swinging. I mean, yeah, you know, to be, yeah, basically. Yes. Mm -hmm. But that, that is also a very uh, wide umbrella. Yeah. There's a lot you can do under that. We're talking about from Joe Henderson to, you know, Errol Garner. Like there's a lot on, and, and even that, even Woody Shaw playing funk straight eight is, is under that umbrella to me. Mm hmm. But there was a certain point, like, I remember being in high school and my buddy Dave was playing me this Kenny Garrett records, and I just didn't make a connection to him. I was like, I don't like, there's something about this. It's not that I didn't like it. I was just like, I don't know why I'd rather hear, like, Sonny Stitt, like, or Coltrane or whatever, you know, like, but for some reason, like, there was, like, an element that was very alien to me Mm -hmm. about that. Mm Mm-hmm. So, you know, and I tried to fake it, you know, when I started playing more with, with Ambrose and, and that was kind of the first time where I was like, wait, what? Like, I'm, I'm not like playing like new hip shit. Like, what do you mean? Like, what are we supposed to do? Like Gerald came back from New York and he had written all these tunes and I was like, I don't know what to play on this. Like, right. I've studied so much jazz drumming and like Gerald, like, I don't, this is a language I don't speak, dude. Like, right. I don't know what this is, <laughs> you know? And then he was like, you got to listen to Robert Glasper. And I was like, oh, okay. And I started <laughs> listening to Robert Glasper. And I got in there for a few years. You know, I did that record with Josh Nelson. And that that's about as, as far out as I'm going to get. Right. And as I, you know, I've gotten older now. And now I'm just like, fuck it, man. Like, I'm in here. This is my vibe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You yeah. know. That's a good place to be. And, and I think, it, you know... You're, we're about the same age. You're maybe a year older than me. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, but uh, you know, we've talked a lot on this podcast about as as you age, you know, the more music you play, it's it's about shedding. It's about letting things go. You know, it's it's Word. Not, it's not necessarily Word. about acquiring new skills and and getting yeah. hit to new styles. It's just about you know something like uh, something comes on your radar and and you're like, okay, I see what's cool about that, and then you try to play it, and you're like that. Like you said, this is not a language I speak. Um, yeah. and, and I could spend a lot of time, you know, learning how to speak this language, but if it doesn't, if it doesn't light you up the same way as something, right. something that you've been into for a long time, you know, you, you, you're probably better served just, you know, recommitting to, to what you really love and what you really, uh, you know, what turned you on yeah. in the first place. Yeah. And th- that's a definite point to, that's important is that, you know, if it lights you up, go for it. You know, like I'm not about like being, 
you know, it's not about not being on a path. I'm not choosing the path of least resistance, right? Which is something that I, 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 I sometimes feel like I have to defend. Like, you know, listen, man, like playing like ride symbol is hard. <laughs> you know, that takes th- thousands of hours of assimilation and just like living in that. Like, that's a language too. You yeah, know, it's not. Yeah. We're not up here in like straw hats, like playing a dead language. Like, right. you know, not to ins- insinuate that that Dixie or whatever that is is that. You know, but I mean, there's. It's, it's deep. It's a deep. It's deep, uh, yeah. and it's 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 alive. And and sometimes, like I have these students, and I have to wonder, like they go, "Can you send me some some records with like comping ideas?" And I'm going, like, "Yeah, of course, you know, like yeah, sure, of course, I'll send you some records." And in the back of my mind, I'm going, like, "What? Like, do you like jazz? Like, why are you asking me these questions? I never asked Jeff Hamilton. Can you send me records?" Or, or exam like I would go and learn like I would I couldn't wait to get to the record store to like sift through and see oh my God Lee Morgan with Philly Joe Jones I can't believe it I didn't know he recorded with Philly Joe you right. and it wasn't it you wasn't because you wanted to check out Philly Joe's comping shit it's because you loved Lee Morgan exactly. and you loved that exactly exactly yeah. exactly man that's that's a fundamental difference yeah I think that's yeah. that's a common thing in in jazz training is is um. Again, I don't know if if students put this pressure on themselves or it's from the teachers or a combination of both, but um like they when when they listen to music, when they study music, they're they're kind of laser focused on a certain aspect of it, you know, whether it's the whether it's how, you know, Lee Morgan gets through those changes or how Philly Joe comps on the snare rather right. than kind of experiencing it and let, letting that music just yeah. wash over them and and see how it affects them. Um, totally. And, and Jazz I think pedagogy is a weird thing. It is, man. It's, it's really a double-edged sword because it's, you know, on the one hand, it's, it's great that, you know, almost any public university in America has, you know, jazz. It has, yeah, it has true. Some jazz training, which is a great yeah. thing, but, but, you know, the, the kind of jazz training that I think some people are getting, um, it's not, it's not that it's wrong. It's not bad what they're studying, um, but I think it leads to a very insulated mentality and mm. um, and uh, inaccessible playing and inaccessible writing. Um, Gary Hobbs told a great yeah. story about um, when he was he was playing in this in this group in the eighties and it was full of odd meters and crazy shit. And his his dad, who was also a drummer, came to see it and and he was like, "So what do you think, Dad?" And he was his dad was like, uh, uh, "Man, it's it's great, great group, great plan, cool writing, you know, but." But you know what this is? It's it's hippopotamus music. And he was like, "What do you mean?" And he said, "It's it's played by hippopotamuses and enjoyed by hippopotamuses." <laughs> 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 um, but it goes back to what you're saying about how like people people like high energy swinging soulful jazz. And and it's not that, you know, playing um, more avant-garde shit is is a waste of time. Um, no, definitely not. There's a place for it. So where do you go to find a treasure trove of information about vintage drums, custom drums, and legendary drummers? NotSoModernDrummer.com Since 1988, Not So Modern Drummer is an institution dedicated to researching and documenting the history of modern drums, the art of drum building, and the legendary drummers who play them. The writers and contributors are some of the top vintage and custom drum experts from around the world. 
Not So Modern Drummers serves as an online gathering place and marketplace for the worldwide community of drummers who buy and sell, collect, preserve, and play these instruments. It also hosts drum-related events that are attended by drummers from all over the world. This website is easy and fun to explore, and the monthly digital magazine subscription is free. So check out NotSoModernDrummer.com. So you mentioned Jeff Hamilton. Um, he, you know, he is of course widely known as as one of the great masters of of jazz drumming. He's not widely known as an educator and and someone who takes mm-hmm. on a lot of students or teaches at a university. Um, so how was it that you established this uh, uh, student mentor relationship with him? Um, well, I. Uh... <laughs> So the first record that I ever heard of him was uh, Don't Get Sassy, Ray Brown Trio. Mm-hmm. ridiculous record. Uh, Benny Green, just so, so great. And uh, so that was, that initiated this just whole like obsessive, you know, 14 year old, like, you know, he's my hero thing. And uh, I went to, uh, Miles Mosley at the time was my best friend mm-hmm. in high school. And we played a lot of video games together and all this stuff, but we were also <laughs> both super into just like Ray Brown, you know, really swinging Ray Brown jazz. Mm-hmm. And he studied, started studying with John Clayton. So one day I was like, well, I want to come with you because I, you know, he, I heard about John Clayton through the Clayton Hamilton Jazz Orchestra. Mm-hmm. And then this money, you know, Miles was showing me records. I was showing Miles records. And I I'd gotten hit to Jeff first. He got hit to John first, you know, of course. Right bass and drums so we go over to john's house and i'm you know this 15 year old kid and i'm really nervous whatever and like you know i talk you know, say hello and i tell him you know i i i'm i'm a big jeff hamilton fan and i hide his cds at the record store <laughs> you know i take his i take like a jeff hamilton trio and i'll put it in like bon jovi or something <laughs> so then i can come back and get it you know snag it when i have bread for it <laughs> and uh he thought that was hilarious so he said well we're playing with eric reed Come at Catalina's. Come to the show. I'll introduce you to, to Jeff. So I did, and I, he introduced me to Jeff. And I told Jeff that some. I said some really just nervous, idiotic. Like I, I respect you more than anyone in the world. I think I said something <laughs> like that, you know. And he went, oh, well, you know, I'm a young brother, you know, something, 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 you know, very Jeff. Hamilton, I can, like, I can well, see you know, him. I, I'm just like waiting man, to hear what he said know. back. <laughs> Yeah, like, you know, he got into his Jake Hanna thing at the time, which I didn't know was a Jake Hanna thing. And right. So, you know, I, he said, well, you know, you want to take a lesson, you know, uh, come to the house. And I had heard that Jeff was like, if you want to study with Jeff, you have to be into Jeff. Right. You know, which is true still. Uh-huh. Uh, and which should be true for any person who has such a strong personality on the music you know you you want to go to them for a reason for something they do right and jeff wanted to make sure that you understood his concept before getting there and you know i told him all my favorite records of his and he that was enough information that he said okay well this kid knows what i do and wants it really wants to study right so i went over there and just just real quick i like i don't think that's about ego for jeff i think that's just about no it's not I, i i do what i do what i do is very specific and, exactly. And if you That's if exactly you, what it is. If you want to learn that, cool. But if if you know, if you don't come to me for what I do, then don't come to me. Exactly. Exactly. It was his way of basically quality control for his students. Right. You know, like you want to study with me because of what I do. Right. So um, 
yeah, totally. It's it was not an ego thing. It was just know what I what I'm about. Right. Um so I did and I went to the lesson and he was, you know, complimentary enough and I, you know, wasn't playing crap, but you know, I was trying and, and yeah. that was enough for him to uh continue and and I just was so obsessed with it that he kind of, we developed a very close relationship, very close. You know, like yeah. I would go to the eye doctor with him or I'd go to the dentist with him just so I could sit in the car on the way over and talk and yeah. go to lunch. And it was just all the time I was around him. And that was really the reason why I didn't go to college. Mm. I, was, I was around Jeff all the time, right. you know. Right. And through him, I was around, you know, Ray Brown or Milt Jackson or mm. whoever, you know, Larry Fuller or whoever he was playing with at mm-hmm. the time. I'd just yeah. go sit there right behind the drums. What better education is that, right. you know? right, right. If that, you know, if, if that's what you want to do. Mm-hmm. So it was very organic upbringing in that regard. Yeah. I didn't go to school. I didn't learn. I wasn't forced to learn anything. I was just told to listen to records. Right. Basically. Right. And that's how I teach now. I, you know, and these kids are just like, well, I, what do I, what, what exercise? Like, no, no, no. Just listen. Right. Just play to the record. You know, it's Mm -hmm. like, you know, and it takes, it's amazing how that's such an alien concept to people, but you know, you get, it's like a vitamin B12 shot of jazz information. You get Mm -hmm. everything, right? You get the feel, you get the, the vocabulary that the soloist is playing. Mm -hmm. You learn their style and feel of playing. You get the drummer, you get the chops having to figure out playing the arrangement. You know, it's like everything. It's all, all there. Yeah. And I think like the, um, you know, the, the whole, the whole book thing, like, you know, John, John Riley has written some great books on jazz drumming. Sure. Um, and, yeah, and I think, Bob drumming, right. right. And I, I think those, those books are intended to, to be used as kind of a gateway or a bridge to the uh-huh. records. Um, yeah. At the end of the book, he's got the whole discography. Right. But I, I think the, the, um, the mistake people make is that they, they treat the book as the beginning and the end. Right. Right. They learn right. the shit that John Riley wrote down. They learn that coordination yeah. yep. and, and leave it at that. When in reality, those, those books are just kind of an accompaniment to what you should be doing, which is listening to these records and playing. Along right. with them. And if right. you're having trouble getting on board with the records and jumping on that train, you go to yeah, the book, then the you book, say, here's yeah. what's going on. Yes, totally. Totally. Yes. Yeah, I agree. I have that book. I mean, I've got a couple books right here. I mean, I, I shed the Wilcox and stuff, you know. Yeah, yeah. But that's kind of just to, to brush, you know, the zeros and ones. Right. I, I say, <laughs> you know, that's mm-hmm. all the, the stuff, the hidden information. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so you're, you're born and raised in LA, right? Yeah. Um, where, what part of LA did you grow up in? Santa Monica. Oh, cool. Yeah. And what'd your yeah. folks do? Uh, my dad is a, uh, is a, uh, a retired contractor. He he ran a contracting business that did kind of like air conditioning and and heating for like large structures, sort of yeah. thing, like parking lots or or uh, you know big built apartment buildings in Beverly Hills, stuff right, like that. Right, right. You know, on like on Wilshire, like those kind of high rise buildings. Yeah. Um, and also you know house houses and stuff too. But uh, and then my mom was a landscape designer. Huh. Wow. Those are those are those are two kind of very un un LA un Hollywood kind of uh, 
Yeah, I know. They weren't in the business. Right, right. <laughs> the biz. Yeah. <laughs> um, so how how was it that you got turned on to music, and, and how was it that, that jazz became the thing? I think, honestly, and I know this is going to sound really ridiculous, <laughs> but like the first music that I loved – was Huey Lewis and the News. Oh, I love it. That's so yeah. great. <laughs> Huey Lewis and the News. Me and too, then man. also like Poison uh-huh. and Motley Crue oh, and Jesus. Guns N' Roses. Right. And, and all these hair bands that were really like like one, four, five kind right. of like do 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 you know, like that kind of vibe. And yeah. I would like just rock out, you know, like when I was a kid. And there is a similar gene. I don't know what it is. I don't know musically how to explain that. But for my in my reception of the, listening to that music, that is very similar to like Gene Harris. Hmm. There's something similar. Mm-hmm. It makes me feel the same. Like <laughs> you know, like yeah, yeah. This is this is this is like joyful. This is like uplifting and and you know, there's there, it makes me want to like you know, dance in a way, yeah. sort of, you know. I think Same there's like with- a, about both of those uh, artists or both of those kind of, kinds of music, it's like there's a there's a distillation about it. Like there's no extra shit. What, what, yeah. you're, what you're hearing is is um, just kind of the essential, like, you know, whether it's Huey Lewis or Gene Harris or whatever, there's no, like the fat is trimmed and it's all pure, yeah. pure spirit and- kind of. You know, and I'm thinking back on it right now, and I'm like thinking to the bands like I didn't really, you know, I I, I don't want to, I, I don't, I, I'm wary to make this like a a, you know, a, a cultural thing, but the, I I feel like there is something about like I guess black music mm-hmm. that that sort of is in all the music that I like, and 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 you know. To say that it doesn't exist in another music would have to be you'd have to categorize whatever that is. But like, for instance, like things like Bob Dylan, mm-hmm. Tears for Fears, <laughs> I didn't like it. Uh-huh. <laughs> there was something not there to me. Yeah, and I still don't like Bob Dylan, or <laughs> and I still don't really like Simon and Garfunkel, uh-huh. or all or Joni Mitchell. There's just something kind of depressing about it. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, you don't have to put this in the interview, of course, but like. No, it's it's staying speaking, in there if you want. <laughs> speaking candidly, you know, like I'd rather hear uh, Gene Harris than – well, I keep using Gene Harris as an example because it's such an obvious sound. I, I, I don't really listen to Gene Harris as much as I'm, it sounds like I do. My, right. You know, my favorite piano players are actually like Wynton Kelly and, and Barry Harris and Red Garland and stuff yeah. like that, Tommy Planning and Cedar Walton. But, you know – Still, though, that the, he characterizes a, a, a energy that mm-hmm. I feel is similar in, you know, James Brown. Love it. Yep. K- Casey and the Sunshine Band. Love it. Earth, Wind, and Fire. Love it. Mm-hmm. Like, there's just like a... Sly and the Family Stone. Like Yeah. yeah there's yeah. just like a funk about it that yep. I love. Yep. And I, 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 I'm attracted to music that has that in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So to answer your question back again, coming back full circle, you know, it was those bands. And then I heard Glenn Miller of all things (laughs) and I loved it. Uh It was swinging. It was like just really thumping and like I loved the the, the tunes. And that was my doorway into the music Mm. was like 
kind of a random thing. A lot of people start with, you know, Chick Corea or they start with, you know, whatever. Right, right. Coltrane or, you know, yeah. Michael Brecker or whoever. But it was – this was – I was like 12 at this point. So I hadn't even had a chance to play in a jazz band. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and then I started listening to GRP All-Star Big Band because Dave Weckl and you know, <laughs> all the magazines. Yep. Yep. And that wasn't quite in there, but it was in there in the way that it, it uh, I was searching now for more musicianship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, yeah. You know, you're not just like doing whatever you want. You're like, okay, that guy's an amazing musician. Right. Wow. Right. Yeah. You know, how do I get there now? Now I'm really interested. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and then, you know, Clifford Brown, Sonny Rollins. Yeah. And then the rest is history. Right. Talk about, talk about blues and, and soul and swing and energy, man. Yeah. I mean, cause it's all in there, even in the, even in, you know, for all of, all of it, Errol, Gar- you know, all that stuff behind me, that's only half of my record collection, you know, it's yeah. all, that's uh, all in there. That genetic structure is somehow related. Right. And like, in addition to to losing some of its, you know, some of its entertainment aspect, I think jazz, uh, and this isn't this isn't a recent thing. I think it started happening probably thirty or forty years ago. But jazz started losing its blues element. Oh man, I think I think it's ninety nine percent gone now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and that's the worst. That's the saddest part of it all. Yeah, is I mean, we could, you know, to me, that's almost. I saw this this uh post on facebook and it said it really got me thinking it said i'll never forget the moment someone said it was racist not to swing when quote unquote jazz what i know it's a strange thing Uh, it's it's a weird sentence i'll never forget the moment someone said it was racist not to swing when jazz in quotes jazz was in quotes Mm -hmm. now what i infer from this statement because i didn't get into it on facebook was that this guy someone went up to him and said hey man it's racist not to swing and this musician was like whatever (laughs) i'm gonna do whatever i want because it's jazz and he wrote it in a very sarcastic way. Uh-huh. I'll never forget the moment, you know, <laughs> like remember when kind of like one of those type of meme type things. Right. And I was thinking to myself, actually, it kind of is. <laughs> it kind of is racist. I wouldn't say racist. Racist is a really strong word. It's kind of cultural appropriation, though. Yeah. Yeah. If you really think about it, and if you're so like sarcastic and snarky about it, it's almost uh, – it was ugly to me. Mm. And it made me think like the two elements that, that are really the strong cultural contribution in that music, blues and the swing, mm-hmm. are pretty much gone. Yeah. Not – I mean we're – you know, I'm throwing out very generic, generalized yeah. statements. But like, you know, again, you go to New York and that's not the case. That wasn't as, as strong. I mean I think every city is is more swinging than LA <laughs> to be honest. Man. Atlanta, <laughs> Kansas City, St. Louis, Indianapolis, Chicago has four jazz clubs. Most mm-hmm. of them are swinging. You know, it's like the – 
you know, it's not about this battle, but it's like, man, like when I really think about it, it really does bum me out. Mm. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And this, and there's, you know, whatever. Well, it's, it's all the it's, more reason for you to be there, man, because, you know, nobody. Well, I mean, yeah. And, you know, <laughs> people are swinging here. There's, you know, it's, it's, it's not just the musicians. It's, it's, it's every element. It's, the, it's a two way street. You have to play, you have to have a receptive audience, too. Right. Right. And that's really what I'm more concerned about is mm-hmm. the audience. You know, I would never tell a musician how they should play mm-hmm. their own music. That's not my business at all. Right. But if I'm playing, you know, there's like a great little clip of Art Blakey saying uh, at the end of his show, he's saying, uh, go out and buy a, j- a, a real straight ahead jazz record. Uh, it doesn't have to be the messengers, but it has to be real jazz. And because we want to be able to trust that you know the difference. <laughs> How heavy is that, man? Yeah. Like he's telling the audience, like, go buy, listen to the music so you can hear the difference between someone who's who's there and like, you know. Right. What a La La Land. Right. Right. And he's, you know, he's Fred, talking about he's talking about the difference between you know a, a group like the Messengers and a group like uh, I don't know Weather Report or the Chick Corea Electric Band. Maybe like, and I not don't know not knocking them these... per se, not knocking them, yeah. but saying like what we do, what this music is, is very specific. And exactly, don't exactly. don't get it twisted and with other shit. Word that to me is is kind of my message right now is that like. We're all jazz messengers now. Mm-hmm. We, it, not because we want to be, because we have to. We are mm-hmm. like who else is? If not us, who? Right. You know. And so I'm very uh, aware of the message that I'm giving to mm-hmm. the audience. You know that we're presenting. You know, this is where this is what we do. Is this a specific? Like you said, it's a specific thing. You know, and I feel like going back to the whole pedagogy thing. To a degree, the, the the core trunk of the music, you know, we can agree that, you know, the, the elements that we talk about are the core elements of the music. If you look historically at what people have been doing, right. what's lasted, you know, it's become almost a stepping stone to, like, generate your own artistic career, mm-hmm. whatever it may be. And so, no, so it's almost been cannibalized. Yeah. You know, where it's like now we have people who play the same 20 tunes. Like I just did a gig at Vibrato with, with some guys. And um, first tune of the night was Wave. as a bossa. <laughs> uh-huh. I played that the other night too. <laughs> like why are we playing this tune? Right. Like really let's like digest this for a second. Why are we playing, first of all, like Brazilian music as if it just is a given that we play Brazilian music. Like I'm not from Brazil. <laughs> right. I didn't grow up with Brazilian music. Like I'm happy to play it and I do my part to do it, but it's somehow become like part of the set. Right. Why? You know, like because Stan uh, gets, that's why because of Stan gets because of two records. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but, but again, like, and then why wave? Like, why not like a thousand other tunes? Like, right. why are we still playing Autumn Leaves all the time? Like, yep. I like Autumn Leaves too, but like, why are we still playing I Remember April right. all the time? Do, like, do you know how many songs are in the Great American Songbook? Like, there are yeah. others. You know, there's bazillions. Like Johnny man. Mercer wrote 1,200. 
Exactly. <laughs> exactly, man. And that you know, that's one of the things I loved about Pizzarelli was that he would play, you know, so many tunes. And like, you know, the Great American Songbook is not like, you know, my my sh- like you don't you don't think Kevin Cannon the Great American Songbook, you know, right, but, but like, on a on a gig I like you're talking about. Too. Yeah, like on a gig like you're talking about a jazz gig yeah, or a let's private Let's play function. some some fucking cool tunes, yeah. man. Some Cole Porter, like there's amazing songbook tunes that nobody touches right and uh it's weird Mm -hmm. to me yeah yeah you know uh yeah i don't i don't know why that is i it might be it it might be laziness or it might just be you know that's those are the first tunes that people learn um uh, there's, I mean, there's definitely a core of common <laughs> tunes that everybody knows. And, you know, yeah. if you're going to play, if you're going to play something more obscure on a gig, then, you know, everybody has to be made aware in advance or everybody has sure. to have this, this and that's huge, fine. You, you know, know, I mean, I have, you know, my, I finally have books for my band, right. You know, um, for that reason, but we, we play kind of hot, more curated tunes, you know, right. if we're going to play something like, I think we, you mentioned, uh, that you did like a Horace Silver tribute and you played the outlaw, right? Yeah, yeah. You know, like, yeah, what a great tune. We that's not in the book, but that's like kind of the kind of stuff that like if it's not original music in that vein, which more often than not, it's we don't have that many originals in the book. But mm-hmm. we'll do something like that. But that takes rehearsal and everybody's gotta, you know, know the shit. But that presentation, like, why can't I go to a jazz club and hear a quintet? nail that shit mm-hmm. and, and an original fine cool if it's an original all the better right you right. know or not like I, I, as long as it's like you know i want to hear it if you know a singable melody for crying out loud <laughs> yeah <clears throat> i one of my one of my best friends is a, a singer shay estes in in kansas city i played with her the whole time i was there and i'll never forget uh you know when i first started playing with her i noticed that she adhered pretty closely to the melody of each song and didn't mm. mess with it and just mm, delivered burning. the melody. And, and I was like, it's, it's so cool that you do that. Like, so, you know, so many singers like really screw with the melody and try to quote unquote, make it their own or whatever. And, yeah. Shay, and Shay said, I just don't think I can write a better melody than Johnny Mercer. Right. <laughs> you know? I mean, you know, give yourself to the music. Right. I hear it. I love yeah. it. Yeah. You mentioned Pizzarelli, and and that uh, coincides with your move to New York, right? Were those were those two connected? Mm-mm. You said Actually, the Pizzarelli got, gig came I, afterwards. Yeah, I moved to New York because I was somewhat a little dark on LA, mm-hmm. to be honest. I had, I had, but mainly it, it wasn't because of. Um, no, it, it was actually, you know, it was. It was like. I mean, I'm starting to sound like some sort of curmudgeon. I'm really not like going around <laughs> grumbling about the, the state of jazz. Like, I, I, I really just prefer to just play, and like all of that goes you, away. You are a happy warrior. You are a happy you know, jazz sure, warrior. <laughs> sure, but like you know, I mean, it does fuel me to to know that like there is a purpose for me to to be playing this way mm-hmm. that I naturally want to play. You know, I'm not. It's not an ulterior motive, but um. Uh, I was playing with Bill Holman for like 10 years and then I got a two week tour gig with Benny Green and, uh, it was like a not Cohen's thing, but it Mm -hmm. was really Benny's trio. So his manager called me for it and everything. So I took the gig. It was months in advance. Of Mm -hmm. course I took the gig 
And it so happened that, like, you know, about a month later, Bill Holman in a rehearsal says, you know, oh, by the way, we have a gig on September, you know, 14th, uh, put it down. And I was like, oh, well, actually, man, I, I can't make it, man. And he fired me. Wow. He fired me by phone. He left me a message. Ugh. And he was like, I got to get someone else. Uh, I need I need someone that's going to make it. And I just got to, you know. And I, I think maybe I had missed a couple rehearsals and that. Like, I was getting busy with other things. And it wasn't – I was 30. You know, right. I, I wasn't at this point like – in. I, you know, I, I sometimes you're busy. Sometimes you're less busy. Mm-hmm. Whatever. This was a busy period, you know. Right. And he fired me. And that was kind of coinciding with the mint firing me on my 30th birthday for no good reason. Uh, but except for that it was meant to be because then I moved to New York. Right. <laughs> um, you know, that. And then I was just seeing like these kids come along that, like, honestly, this was like the, the, like the, where I realized, like, holy shit, like, there's all these kids coming up and they're super like arrogant and they think this is their scene and they don't know tunes and they don't know this and this and that. And like, I'm out dude. Mm -hmm. Like, fuck this. I'm out. Mm -hmm. And I moved to New York kind of in spite. Yeah. I didn't really want to go to New York. Hmm. I just was going to move because I was like, fuck it. Why not? (laughs) Like I'm only going to live once. I did. And I did. And I loved a lot of parts about it. Ultimately, mm-hmm. like I just didn't want to be living on the East coast. That was really the, the gist of it. Like everything that that brings with your lifestyle being in the Northeast. Yeah. Not for me. And we've talked about that a lot on, on this podcast about what life in New York comes with and the differences between New York and LA, just in terms of your daily life, you know, like going to train. Yeah, shows. It's all about that. Yeah. It's not about the music. Right. Right. You know, you either are from the East coast and can handle that kind of thing. And it's home to you or no thanks. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. And you were no thanks. You know? I was no thanks. And after, it was huh? after like four years. I was there for four and a half years. Yeah. And three of those years were with Pizzarelli. Right. So you were traveling a lot. A lot. Yeah. A lot, a lot. Yeah. Like. Twice a week, I was on a plane somewhere mm-hmm. all year, if not for long periods of tour. Like it was just a minimum of like twice a week, right? Right. You know, so my experience with New York became driving from Brooklyn to LaGuardia, because then I'd come home and I was like, Dude, I'm not fucking going to Harlem to see like <laughs> nothing. I'm hanging out, right? You know, right. I've been working all weekend, whatever. You know, you don't want to go anywhere when you're gone from home all the time. Forty five percent of the year. So and then there was also combined with that the um the the other side of being on a touring gig like that which I did not expect. Mm-hmm. Which honestly, you know, the Pizzarelli gig was amazing in a lot of ways. Like John is a first class entertainer. Yes. Like nobody I've ever played with. Yes. I mean, he can, you know, go on and on about stories and telling jokes that have the audience going nuts. And that's part of the other side of the story Mm. is that I was doing less playing than I thought I'd ever do. Hmm. I wasn't being really challenged musically anymore because we play a lot of the same things. You know, there was, there was, there there were the challenges within yourself that you make for yourself, which is always there. Right. Right. Um, And I, by no means am, am, am bringing that gig down. It's just a reality that comes 
with any gig that you're playing that often for that long. Right. You know, with the same guys. It's just what it is. Yeah. And you start to like, you know, I wasn't taking solos. I'd get maybe one solo a, a week. Mm. As opposed to like, you know, the $60 gig where I'm blowing all night long. Right, right. You know, and suddenly I was I was almost like, man, I, w- I would just wish I could be playing in a restaurant right now for, you know, just trading eights with cats, playing tunes. Yeah, yeah. You know, instead of like this highly curated show, which is so bizarre, you know, like, but I felt kind of um, trapped, mm-hmm. financially trapped that I needed the gig to afford living in New York. Right. But I didn't really like living in New York, and I was also not really playing the music I wanted to play. Mm-hmm. Not always. Yeah, it was about as close as you're going to get, though, with a gig that pays that much and still has swinging in it. Right. And I remember thinking, like, when when you got that gig and and started touring a lot, I remember thinking, like, that's a that's a great gig for Kevin because yeah, it's it's, it's so swinging. John, like, John is the goods. I mean, he does yeah. put, he does put on a show, and he's kind of like he's totally kind of, kind of an East Coast Harry Connick. You know, he has that. He Don't tell that. him that. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but the two of them, the two of them definitely have an accessibility to Absolutely. the average listener that is also backed up with world class musicianship. Just, and even more to the point of detail oriented, it's like straight Oscar Peterson quartet. Right. Like, right. The, just the style of drumming is like Ed Thigpen all the way. Like, right. You but, know what I mean? Like, yeah. that's the gig. And I remember even I re- more. It was more for me. Yeah. So I remember thinking, like, this is this is a great gig for Kevin, but this is probably about as mainstream as he's ever going to go. Yeah. I mean, what's uh, the only the only other gig is like crawl. Right. You know, I mean, and for me, for my honest talent set of tools, whatever, you know, like the sound of my drums, the Mm -hmm. the cymbals I use, like I would not know what to do on a drum set that had more than three cymbals. You know, I'd be like, "Mm, you know, what is this thing? (laughs) Who's this little guy? (laughs) It's a splash. (laughs) Um, But yeah. Did you 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 play with Diana Krall or no? I never really played with her. No, I, okay. I I did a rehearsal for her uh, her big band record at Capitol. I subbed for one day of rehearsals, but it, it you know nothing I'd put on a resume. Right, right. Um, so after um after coming back to L.A., uh, did you did you find it um different, better, worse than than when you left? Like not you know four and a half years isn't that long, but. No, um, um, I wanted to come back to LA so badly. I was dreaming of just driving down, of just driving home from gigs. Mm-hmm. You know, the peace mm-hmm. and quiet of like an eleven thirty drive from from you know vibrato or yeah. whatever. Right. You know that that vibe. You know, it's like you finish a gig in New York and you're like, I drove everywhere. You know, and it's Man. like as soon as you get in your car, you're just like. Ah, <laughs> you know, like gridlock traffic. No matter what time of night it is, yeah. No, there's no way to escape it. One way streets. You have to take this bridge. You have to take this tunnel. So I was just so excited to come back to LA for every other reason except the music. And I had to really mentally prepare myself for that, right? You know, to, for to... the reality of, you know. There isn't 70 bass players to call that all know the shit out of Paul Chambers. Right. There aren't 70 piano players that sound like Barry Harris. Hmm. And, you know, and know every tune. And like, 
I'm not being challenged that way. Like, uh, there's a couple, you know, but John Campbell moved to right. Chicago, yeah, because he had no work in L.A. Mm. He moved to home because he had no, John Campbell. <laughs> you, like what? Yeah, you know, like that's crazy to me. Yeah, a guy like you know, and he, he's a you know, he didn't have email and doesn't want to, you know, he's. Anti-technology, so maybe that has something I, to do I with it. I would say that has a lot to do with it, but I, yeah, <laughs> I take your sure. point I mean, that a dude that talented, plane, right, right, a dude that talented should be working. Yeah, and it's like, man, it's just you know. So I had to be prepared for that, but thankfully, uh, I've somehow we've the, this mint thing, which I didn't seek out. They called me mm. again. I have been able to kind of gel together the cats that I'm playing. You know, we've kind of formed like this, you know, we've linked hands, linked yes. arms, you know. Yes. Eric Reed, who is a, you know, beast. Mm-hmm. Above, he's one of the greats, yeah. you know. Yeah. Gr- Graham Dector, who's amazing too, and Garola, who's super great, you know. Mike and is, this alto is... player, Danny Janklow, or or Ricky Woodard, whoever it is in the front line. But the, the rhythm section is generally those four guys, and whoever is in the front line kind of sometimes changes around. Right. But we have really just banded together and be like, you know, because we all see that, like, we're, we're kind of outnumbered. Mm-hmm. Or not outnumbered, that's a negative spin on it. You know, we're just, there's... You're the Not minority. Not many of us like-minded musicians. Yeah. So let's yeah. stick together. Yeah. So I've been fortunate to have those guys jumping at the gigs that we're getting. Right. You know, right. or available for them, whatever. So that that's your that's your core band for the 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 Mint Jam as well as you know other other performances. That's my band. Yeah. 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 Um, and they're all super strong. They're all leaders in their own right. So. Right. Everybody, no one's looking to me for some, you know, it's like, you know, you know it, you're, mm-hmm. the le- you know, you're a leader too in this band in a way. Yeah. Um, uh, so. And at the jam, like on, on Facebook, I've also seen, uh, Nick Mancini is there a lot. Who's been on this podcast. Sure. sure Josh yeah. Nelson is there. Who was like one mm-hmm. of your original cohorts. My man. Yeah. That's my bro. Yeah. One of my best friends. Um, Josh. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I'm going to see if he can come do the next couple of Eric's out um, with Willie Jones. Mm. So I don't, you know, uh, yeah, whoever, you know, it was getting to a point, though, at the very beginning where it was just like this huge party, like, oh, my God, you know, the mid's back. Everybody <laughs> right. come play. You right, know, you right. want to play? Yeah. You know, and then it was like, okay, well, wait, hold on. Now we everybody's taking one chorus each because we've got 17 guys on the bandstand. Like maybe – so I have had to sort of – dwindle it into a more manageable situation where I can actually focus on a band sound because I am recording this group Mm -hmm. in the next six months or less, hopefully in the next four months. Mm -hmm. And we have our, my first tour as a leader out of Cal out of LA at a club in San Francisco called black cat, Mm -hmm. um, which is super happening. We have five nights there Tuesday through uh, Wednesday through Sunday Cool with that band. And yeah. then after that, we'll record. And then, you know, I'm kind of at that point now where it's like life after Pizzarelli because I'm not in that band 100% anymore. I'm not doing probably 65% of the gigs, right. at least. Right. Um, just by way of, you know, the coast I live on. And he's going back to, from what I'm seeing, a trio format with no drums. Right. I was going to ask, like, you know, I 
all of his records or so many of his records were just the trio with him on guitar and vocals and and bass and yeah. piano and no drums. Yeah. Um, he, that's his original shit, man. So yeah. like it's not and a God, big it surprise. swings so hard. Oh man, totally. You know, that's his brother Martin and, and Ray Kennedy, who was such a beast. Yeah. Um when Larry Fuller joined the band, it was with drums. So for the last fifteen years, because I think God, I think um uh oh man, I'm brain farting on his name right now. Um Tedesco, Tony Tedesco mm-hmm. was the drummer before me. Mm-hmm. And he was in the band for like eleven years or something like that. He's been doing it with drums that long. Yeah, wow. I know. Okay. It's, it actually is quite a long time. Because yeah. I, the first gig I did with Pizzarelli, in fact, was in 2002. I did this tr- this this concert. If you can see this poster. Uh, oh yeah. In, yeah, 2001. So I did a six month a six uh, week tour bus tour with him. Huh. And I was like 21 actually. Wow. And so he, that's how I got the gig again. Cause mm-hmm. he remembered me and we had a great relationship on that tour. And, uh, you know, I was the youngest guy in the band. So he kind of took me under his wing and right. Yeah. Um, so, so, but yeah, going, going back to your band, it, you know, uh, it, it seems like you have this core, you know, small army of, of guys who, who, uh, really want to, uh, you know, fight, fight the good fight for, for straight ahead, soulful, high energy swinging in LA. Yeah, yeah, you know, I mean, and 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 we're not. I'm I'm wary of of creating that that um uh that motive of it being sort of um a you know a war, right? You know, an army. I, 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 you know, I understand the, the, the thought, but I'm also careful to not to be. I, I want to be more inclusive than that. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to be more inclusive than that because it is easy to be like, well, you know, we're fighting for our side of the music, and and you know, there is that element is is part of the mission statement, but it's I, I don't I want it to be more um, inclusive than than us versus them because I know that what, is, I know what you mean because there's you know like, what I mean there's there is a lot of jazz in LA but there's really not a lot of what you do so yeah I think I think what you're what you're trying to do is is just say like hey us too how about us too that's exactly what I'm doing and yeah. and even to go a step further to say like hey don't forget where you came from mm, yeah and like show this music the proper respect because guess what everywhere in the country does right you know, right. like we're not a stepping stone for you to play knee body tunes. Mm, yeah. You know, like and <laughs> don't come on my gig, you know, with the attitude that this isn't that. So let me just rest on the 20 fucking minutes I spent actually listening to Hank Mobley. <laughs> you know, like that's not this. Like we're here dealing like and I'm and we're not copying. It's not a copycat thing. It's mm-hmm. like having the, the language down fluently. Yep. You know, mm-hmm. that that's more what I'm I'm concerned with. So that's why I say it's like I'm not saying I, I don't take assume the role of torchbearer. I mean I'm only thirty eight, you know, are we at that stage, you know, the generation gap. But like more just that like you know, we're all like these like you know, I, th- I I think of it like New York when I think of like all the musicians, you know, you, you have all these clubs and they're populating. And from these clubs, they're spreading out this sound, mm-hmm. this 
You know what I mean? Kind yeah. of like yeah, instead yeah. of just me being like the leader of this parade, like I'm more kind of like a a beacon, and then from that, whatever I can share through my band, through the musicians to come, through the the music that we play, the set lists I curate. You know, like they're getting to hear more people are getting to hear Cedar Walton tunes that nobody plays. Right. You right. know, and there's there's lots of them. Mm-hmm. You know, everybody plays Firm Roots, everybody plays Bolivia, but there those are two out of uh, two hundred. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. so or you know the Horace Silver tunes that we play that yeah. people don't know that well. Man. You know, I mean, I'm playing them selfishly because I love the tunes and I, they're fun to play, but also because that's you know the language that we're speaking and we're trying to just get it out there. Right. Right. And it goes back to what you were saying about, um, you know, both, both about Hamilton and about yourself, like Hamilton, you know, when he takes on a student, he's like, I I do a specific thing and I'm going to teach that thing. And if you want to learn that thing, great. And, and talking about yourself, um, just saying like, you, you know, you came, you came in contact with certain types of music that you were like, that's a language I don't speak. So I think you're, um, you're you're turning that around on on the people that play in your band and the, the, the people that you come in contact with, saying you know don't don't disrespect this. This isn't Kneebody. This isn't whatever else. Nothing against that. But yeah, it's, it's not this. Body. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, exactly. So, yeah, and, and like going back to what you said about like this is not a war. It's not an adversarial thing. You're just trying to carve out a space. In, in that scene on that landscape for, for what you do and what you love. Yeah. You know, and I want, I, I, you know, on a bigger, if I was to think so, you know, grandly about it, you know, to, uh, somehow change the pedagogical approach to this because, you know, I, and I don't even know if that's, if that's even worth doing, you know, cause of course, you know, you always, the world, the music reflects the world too. Mm-hmm. That that's that there is that element of jazz that can't be ignored. Mm-hmm. You know, it is a social music. It does represent socially what's happening. So, I'm wary of that too. Um, which is partially why I can't. I, I almost just can't be bothered. Like I, it's just too <laughs> much of a mind fuck. Like I have to just. <laughs> play you right. know just, because that's truth to me like there's no question when i sit down on the drums and i go bing 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 you know like uh, yeah uh, yeah i'm home right right right, right. On, baby now let's go you know that's that that's just primal there's nothing to argue about there right but you know you could you could uh, argue about you know i sometimes i think that the arguing about face about jazz on facebook is actually more popular than jazz music itself mm. yeah talking about it yeah you know podcasting about it or like the, you know, the, the Ethan Iverson thing that he's done, mm-hmm. you know, that probably gets more hits than his records. <laughs> That's true. Yeah. You know, which is cool. There's always been that element of the music too. The, the, you know, the, the, uh, it inspires a lot of different avenues of creativity, which is awesome. Right. But you know, and with creativity I, comes all that to with creativity comes a lot of strong opinions and, and creative people, exactly. creative exactly. people take shit personally. They, they feel ownership over certain things. And of course, yeah. of course. So there's just, you know, there's a lot there to unpack. So sometimes I just have to like retract and just go back to the things that I, I know I love, which is just the music. You right. Know? Right. Just um, play that ride so symbol, baby. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Totally. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, well, man, yeah. it's, 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 uh, it's good to see you back in LA. 
Uh, and, and I, the, the scene, the scene needs you. I, I know you feel like you're, you're a little bit alone in this, <laughs> in this mission of, of yours, but you know, I've, I've told people in Atlanta, I've told people on this podcast that LA has a great jazz scene and it gets short it shrift. Does. It gets short shrift in, in uh, comparison to places like New York. Um, but it has, it has a great jazz scene, but what it is lacking is, is your shit. So I'm I'm glad you're back yeah. there. Well, thanks, man. I appreciate that. I do. Cool. We good? We're we're totally good, man. It was great talking with you. Thanks and for uh, thanks for including me on this this podcast too. I'm honored. Absolutely, super cool, man. man. I've been wanting to do it with you for a while. The podcast. Thanks, that is. bro. <laughs> hey. hey. <laughs> right on, bro. Well, uh, I'll talk to you soon. I'm sure. Be cool, man. Yeah. You too. Be well, man. All right, bud. Thank you. That was fun. Loved that talk with Kevin, and it reminded me how much I enjoyed hanging with him on the few occasions we got to do so when we were both in L.A. Uh, We've been adding bonus content on our website for those who donate to Patreon. That bonus content consists of everyone we interview listing their top five favorite records, a desert island list, if you will. Why am I mentioning this? Well, A, to give you another reason to donate to our Patreon campaign, but B to inform you that Kevin, with very little hesitation, rattled off five small group jazz records. We talk a lot on the podcast about playing and listening across a broad spectrum of genres, uh, but there was something refreshing about the fact that Kevin just knows who he is, he knows what he loves, and he owns it without really thinking about it. Thanks to Crush Drums for their sponsorship this week. Thanks, as always, to Mike Jackson for his technical assistance, and come back next week for Matthew Krause. Cheers. Cheers.